Somewhere around 100 years ago, Englishman G.K. Chesterton was an internationally recognized writer, critic, social commentator. He made a historic visit to Worcester at Holy Cross back in the early 30s, I believe it was. Well, in 1908, in the middle of Chesterton's career, the Times newspaper of London asked a number of prominent authors of the day to share their thoughts on the following question. What is wrong with the world? Well, of the many highly sophisticated answers that were submitted, Chesterton's was by far the most succinct. Dear sirs, he wrote, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton nailed it, as he almost always did. If you're not familiar with him, you should get acquainted. From the Bible's perspective, which was also G.K. Chesterton's, every single one of the problems out there in our big, wide world, every single one of them gets its start in here, inside each one of us. In fact, the only reason those terrible troubles are even out there is because they are already in here. And so any fix for out there is not out there. So... What's wrong with the world is not political or social or cultural or educational or economic or military. None of those things will fix anything going on out there. They might alleviate a few things here and there, but there's no cure. The fix, the only real fix is right here and right there. And of course, it's spiritual. So this morning as we continue exploring Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're going to glimpse together some of the distance between God's view of what's wrong with the world and our view of what's wrong with the world. And we're going to see something of the distance between those two perspectives and how we can close that gap about what's wrong with the world by bringing our whole selves and what's wrong with us, heart, mind, body, and soul, bring that more closely in line with God's truth. So Jesus begins this section, Matthew 5, 21. It's all printed in your handouts for you. 
with the danger inside each and every one of our hearts. No exceptions. We used to have a smoke detector just outside of our kitchen. It was maddeningly sensitive. It was probably defective. And we just, we called it, we renamed it, the burning smell detector. Because that's all it took to set it off. And it would trip the whole system. It's all interconnected, right? Throughout the whole rest of the house. Would that I were that hypersensitive to the hazards, the Bible says, that are ever and always lurking inside of my own heart. It's a dangerous and scary world out there for sure. But the single greatest danger and threat to me and to my life and to yours, at least according to Jesus, and I think we should take what he says seriously, the single greatest threat is in here. Sarah Groves sings in one of her songs, we hold all the keys to our own undoing. So here's what Jesus says in verses 21 and following. The word of the Lord, the Lord. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister, obviously, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which this is an Aramaic term of derision, that literally means empty-headed. It's like calling someone an idiot. Anyone who says that to his brother or sister, you idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, which is the court, the legal court of the Jewish people. But anyone who says, you fool, you jerk, you idiot, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Do any of us really believe that? Presumably, most of us don't consider ourselves capable of homicide. But Jesus draws a direct link between my anger, my dismissiveness of others, my putting other people down, which some of you know I am very good at. He draws a link between that attitude, that posture, that behavior, and my potential for murder. He connects those dots. We don't. He does. Now, it's not that calling someone a jerk, even if 
only silently to myself. It's not that calling someone a name like that is going to get me thrown into hell or turn me into a killer necessarily. Rather, it is that doing so, last time I got cut off, last time someone jumped ahead of me in line, whatever it is, last time somebody said something that offended me, and that was my response, what that does is it exposes the true, raw, and unedited state of my heart. And when that happens, I had better pay attention. And since I am more than willing, able, and inclined to demean or denigrate or be dismissive of other people's, whether it's in anger or fear or just derision, I am therefore also guilty simultaneously of exactly the same attitude, posture, mindset, and state of heart, which can, and on occasion does, lead to murder. And it doesn't matter where one might be along that chain, along those series of dots. It doesn't matter. We just need by the grace and the power of God to break that chain. That time. These chains keep popping up, don't they? So our first application this morning, it's been already introduced by Miles and Tanya. If you've got a thing there... You've got an attitude towards somebody, the kind that Jesus is talking about, danger. Where is it? What is it? Who has triggered that? Now, of course, when Jesus warns us about something, He tells us how to address it without minimizing the danger or the warning. Safety is in obedience. Now, when that kitchen smoke smell detector would get triggered, which was almost whenever anyone was cooking, we'd... we'd, run over and I'd step up on the stairs because it's up there and I'd just unplug it to make it stop. But if it went off in the middle of the night, which it occasionally did, I can't sleep through that. I'm going to have to get up and make sure that it's not actually detecting real life smoke or just old smell somewhere in the house. I would have been stupid to ignore it, and it's impossible anyway. You know, they're blaring all over the house at 3 o'clock in the morning. Jesus sounds the warning, alerting us to the danger within 
And he then tells us how to come against it, to flee into safety and not be damaged by the danger. So that any anger, dismissiveness, superiority, or defensiveness that's slinking around inside of me, this is how I prevent it from growing into something even more dangerous and damaging. The only safety to which we can flee when that stuff starts percolating inside of us is our obedience. There's the safe place. Verses 23 and 24. Therefore, and notice the therefore, Jesus is tying us directly to what he just said. If you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're bringing your gift, your tithe, your offering to church, let's enculturate it for us, and there at the altar... In a moment of praise or worship to the Lord, you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. Now, I love how nondescript that is. You've had this happen, right? It's like you just you sort of encounter somebody in worship or on the on the way getting ready for church. And it's just something doesn't feel right. There's the danger. That's the warning bell. Something's not right. And it's irrelevant whose fault it might be. It doesn't matter how that little tiny wedge got in there. It's not important to Jesus at this point. But you're there in the presence of the Lord, bringing yourself to him and something Pops into your head. Oh, uh oh. Something, I just, something's, something's off here. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. <laughs> Leave church. <laughs> first, first, this is so much more important to Christ than it is to us. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and sister. Work it out. Then, then you can come and offer your gift. But until you do that, I don't want to hear from you. The Bible outlines for us step-by-step process by which we are to do this. It's not easy. Nothing, at least in my experience, nothing about obedience is easy. But it's clear. So first... Here's the steps. Given this passage, 
If we're going to be obedient to what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, this is, this is just one little piece of the sermon. Plenty more to come. Given this passage, we are to ask the question, have I taken responsibility for myself and made this effort to just see if there might be something going on? Praise God, sometimes there isn't. It's like, no, no, I, I, no, we're, we're good. But we ought to always be checking up. Are we okay? Are we good here? Is there something, you know, have I offended you? Have I done something? Did I say something? That it, it is each and every one of us, it is our responsibility to initiate the resolution of conflict, even if it's not really there. Better, far better to be safe than sorry. So that's the first thing. Have, have I initiated? Have I taken responsibility here? Secondly, we pray according to another passage coming up later in the Sermon on the Mount. Conveniently enough, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why, Jesus says. I hate asking this question. I hate Jesus asking me this question. Why do you look at this speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye and pay no attention to the plank, the board, the log in your own hand? I love how every once in a while in the scriptures you get these Okay, this is Jesus is a carpenter. He's a builder. He knows about planks. He knows about sawdust. So it's like his own experience coming into this teaching. Why are you so focused on that speck of sawdust and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I mean, what's more dangerous to the people around me, their specks or my plank? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take that speck out of your eye? When all the time there's a plank in your own. You hypocrite. How can Jesus be calling us hypocrites? Because we're hypocrites when we focus on each other's specks and ignore our own planks. First, is that first again? Take the plank out of your own eye. Okay, which means we, we can do this. The plank, get it out. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye. And the planks, such things as anger, You get in a fight, you get in a tussle with your spouse or your kids or your parents. You can't see the real situation clearly from God's perspective when you're angry. You know it, I know it. We just can't. Mockery, defensiveness, superiority, pride. Dangers like those which Jesus has warned us about. And I have to ask myself, I've done this once or twice, but hardly ever right away. 
Have I taken my plank out first? Usually, no. So, so far in this process, we're just on step one and two. I haven't said anything yet to anybody except God, because I'm trying to work through this with the Lord, right? Oh, so angry at that guy. And you gotta, we gotta, talk, we gotta wrestle with God through these things before we say anything. The third, we've gone through that. Be direct. After I have taken pains to remove my plank and recognized my own contribution to the potential conflict here through my own anger or whatever it is. But after I've addressed that with God, Jesus instructs us later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, to be direct. If your brother sins against you, so as an if there, has sin been committed and has it been against me? Then go show him or her the fault just between the two of you. Now, this is where it gets really sticky. Because so far, nobody else is supposed to be involved. Me, you, God. It's just the two of us. No one else even knows about this yet. But how often <laughs> do we not obey this? Just start talking about what somebody might have done or said or thought about something I did or said or thought, whatever it is. No, that's not okay. It's not safe there. I don't see how Jesus could be much clearer about this, but we don't do this stuff as a rule. If he or she listens, you know, you're right, I'm so sorry, I I really was, I was just so upset that day. I had something else going on, or I was really mad at something you said, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you're right. You're right, please forgive me. So if that happens, you rejoice together. You've restored that relationship. You've won your brother over, as Jesus says, but... If that doesn't happen, and there's like, no, you're wrong. You won't listen to that effort at reconciliation. You bring in help. And by the way, that is a telephone in your notes there, for those who used to talk on those. Um, sort of the precursor to the iPhone. That, that's an old telephone. You call in help in case you were wondering, what is that thing there? Take one or two others along, not a mob. Again, this has got to be personal and direct. We're so, Christians, we are so, 
I get so irritated when we try to be so nice. We think that's the gospel behavior, right? Be nice. Be honest. Be direct. Be clear. Be specific. You can try to be nice while you do it. You should be nice while you do it, but that's not the point. Talking to one or two others about this conflict is not what Jesus says to do. He says, these other people need to come with me. And if that person refuses to listen listen to them as he's already refused to listen to me, then you tell it to the church. And in most cases, this means elders in most churches, I think, who may then bring the matter to the church body for further action. And then Jesus concludes that passage by saying, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, we are to make every effort together on the part of the whole body in humility and mercy and gentleness and love. Everything should be directed towards promoting restoration, reconciliation, repentance, grace. That's how we're supposed to treat pagans and tax collectors. We're supposed to treat ourselves and one another that way all the time. This is the active biblical kind of love that we are really weak at. So again, what matters here for each one of us is taking the initiative. Make the effort. Do the first step. And don't wait until you feel like it. You know what we're saying is give peace a chance. Of course, we're talking about God's shalom, not John Lennon's fantasy. And here's another way that this is so important. I mean, it's so clearly the top of God's agenda for his people. Doesn't mean we all agree on everything. In fact, we don't. We're not supposed to agree on everything, but we are supposed to treat one another with this kind of love and mercy and honesty and integrity that brings glory to God in his church. But here's the other danger. It's the same danger. It's just sort of like the other side of the wedge. Because any wedge between me and you, between husband and wife, between parent and child, between co-worker and co-worker, any wedge is always going to result in a wedge between me and God. It's inevitable because God wants unity in his people. So the only way to prevent that wedge between me and God is obedience to Jesus' words. 
I initiate his steps and try to fix whatever might be amiss between you and me. Now, we all know this doesn't always result in a lovely rose garden full of flowers and birds and bees and butterflies. Sometimes the other person doesn't want to play by the rules. We've all experienced that. We may have even been that one. But only until we have taken responsibility for ourselves, made these efforts, at least according to Jesus, only then can I present myself to the Lord with a clear conscience and offer myself, my gift, to him. So application number two this morning. Is there a name just kind of rumbling around in your head right now? Holy Spirit just might be nudging you there. Hmm? Now, the reason to do this, obviously, is because Jesus tells us, and if we want to be free in Christ, we need to be obedient. The urgency of doing this right away is for our own freedom in Christ. Any of you ever, I don't know, in a hurry, real busy, Bring that busyness, that urgency to get something done or accomplished. Bring it here and apply that busyness and hurriedness to your own obedience. (laughs) I'm never in a hurry (laughs) to obey when it's something I don't want to do. 25 and 26. This is all the same passage. We've chopped it up in three different pieces, but it's Jesus says these things one after another. They're all strung together so beautifully. Verses 25 and 26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Now, someone's taking you to court I mean, that's an extreme case, but that always happens because there's an unresolved conflict, right? Do it quickly. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you might get thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Okay, so that's that's an extreme scenario, certainly. But the point is obvious, and it applies regardless. Settle personal conflicts quickly. A-S-A-P. Why? My motivation is that it's mainly for my own good. (laughs) There is even more danger of damage between you and me and between me and the Lord if I wait, if I put it off, if I stall for time, if I'm not ready. 
So Jesus tells this mini parable here to say, look, friends, if you don't make the effort to work things out now, you may lose the chance. The window will eventually close. We all know to our sorrow, we've seen this happen in our own lives. And then you'll find yourself heading for an even bigger world of hurt down the road, and it will be of your own making. There's a proverb that says something to the effect that an offended brother is more difficult to scale than a city wall. For the sake of our own souls, the sake of our freedom, our joy, our peace, go ahead and think of obeying God as being selfish for your own sake. Just do it now. Jesus is out to fix me. Not, I I didn't just hear an amen there, did I? I think I did, good, okay. Jesus is out to fix me, not, not to have me fixing you let alone trying to fix the world. It's my sickness in my heart that's the danger to both of us. It's what's in me and what's in you that makes the world out there the way it is. And even sadder to say, it's what makes the church as ineffective, and unimpactful as the church can oftentimes be. But if we will heed Jesus' warning and obey his prescription, our freedom, delight, our peace, our joy, and most of all, our love. This is the hard, this is hard love. But that's what it costs. That's what it takes. But this makes our love secure. It is well with our souls indeed, even if and even when the other party may not play along. So let's each take the medicine that the Spirit has urged us to take today for our good, His glory. When we talk about obedience, it's like, it's just hard stuff. It's, it's hard to hear. It's harder to do. But it's not up to us on our own to obey God. It's through Christ we obey. It's by his power in us. It's by his willingness His earnest, heartfelt desire to help us obey that brings us there.
So wherever it is that God might be pinpointing in you this morning, that you're struggling to do what you know he wants you to do, don't, don't look to yourself in your own strength. Christ. It's this Christ's work in us. It's Christ's work in his body. It's the Holy Spirit's power to affect that incredible, incredible statement slash promise that Jesus gave to us. The world will know. The world will know. You're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Not feeling love, not emotional, romantic love, but active, hard, obedient love. There's none of that out there in the world. It's only in here through the power of Christ. Thank you, Jesus.